0: In case you missed last week, or maybe this is once again, maybe it's your first week here at Encounter. I want to take a moment just to kind of catch you up to where we are coming into this week's message. And for any of you who were here last week, I'm sure a reminder will not be a bad thing either. So last week we uh, we started part one of a part two story about a man named Gideon, a man who God had called into service to to lead the Israelite nation out of the the oppression that they were under from the Midianite people. Uh, But Gideon wasn't so sure about this calling that God had put into his life. Gideon had a lot of doubts, a lot of insecurities, a lot of questions. And so he asked God to give him a sign. Actually, he asked God for a number of signs before the text is over. But at the end of the story, he asked God if God would take a thick piece of Of wool, and that God would make the wool wet with dew and the ground around it dry. And God answered his request. But Gideon was still unsure. He was still uncertain. He still had a lot of doubt about what was going on. And so the next night he asked that God would do just the opposite God, would you make this thick piece of wool dry, but the ground around it wet with dew? And God answered his request. God gave Gideon the encouragement that he needed in the midst, in the face of Gideon's doubts and uncertainties. So I guess we could take a moment and we could talk about, you know, is it right to ask God for signs? Is that what people should do? Should we ask God to give us something when things aren't going quite the way we want? Or maybe we could take our finger and we could shake it at Gideon because you need to have faith in those moments. There's no room for doubt. How dare you lack faith, especially when God provides a sign? But it's interesting to note that as, as the biblical narrative moves on as a whole, when he gets into the New Testament, this man named Gideon gets listed as a hero in the faith. That's Hebrews 11. And so you wonder, the great doubter in the book of Judges, this man who needs all these signs from God, gets listed as a hero of faith. What's with that? And so we looked at it a little bit closer and said, it's, it's really that Gideon had an authentic faith. A faith so authentic that in the face of his doubts, in the face of his uncertainty, he took those things to a God who he believed would respond to him in some way. And there's a short lesson on doubt there that says that faith needs a little bit of doubt in order to be true faith. In the, the text there, it made us stop for a second to say Who in our lives do we have enough faith in to entrust with our doubts? Do we take our doubts to things like fear and insecurity or anxiety? Are those the things that get primary access to doubt? Or do we take the insecurity, the doubt, the troubles in our life, do we take them to a Heavenly Father, a God who knows us, a God who loves us, a God who has made a commitment to be with us, to hear and accept even the doubts we have when we bring them to him. That was Gideon part one. Uh, Today we pick up the story for uh, Gideon part two. Uh, Gideon is preparing to fight a battle with these Midianite people who have taken over their land. And we know up to this point that Gideon is gathering a, a group of fighting men. And he has done this up to this point, but now it's time to really see whether or not God's commitment to Gideon Would stand true. Uh, This is a a unique, it's an interesting story. It comes to us from the book of Judges, chapter 7. I'll go ahead and read the text this morning. It's the first 21 verses, and if you'd like, I invite you to follow along on the words on the screen behind me. This is Judges 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all of the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such a force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon." Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpet and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. This is God's word for us today. Friends, 1% is nothing to brag about. Uh, 1% looks like a single penny per hour raise when you were hoping for at least a dollar per hour raise. Um, Some of you might recall in the not so recent past there was this political movement that would speak out against this group known as the 1%. That's all I'll say about that. The band Three Dog Night once lamented that one is the loneliest number. But I might argue that 1% is a little bit lonelier than the number one. A credit card company might boast about how it rewards its faithful members with cash back. Cash back that usually comes in the form of 1%, meaning if you spend $1,000 of your own money you might get $10 of it back. But on the other hand, if you don't pay off your credit card balance, they charge you 35% interest. Let's try this one. Um, 1% looks like trying to find Waldo in a Where's Waldo picture. If you were to take 1% and put it on a pie graph, it's it's that little piece, that little sliver that comes between two black lines so close together that they actually have to draw in an arrow to say this represents 1%. Of the whole. 1% is nothing to brag about. You may have noticed that as we read through the story this morning, Gideon's troops get further and further reduced as the story moves on. Uh, As the story keeps going, he's left with just a fraction of what he starts with. And by the end of the story, that fraction he's left with amounts to just 1% of what he started with. Friends, 1% is nothing to brag about. When Gideon starts, he has 32,000 fighting men. Uh, 32,000 seems like a pretty good-sized force of people. Uh, That's equivalent to taking everyone who lives within the city limits of Holland, Michigan. That's almost 32,000 people. And if you're not impressed by that number, consider the fact that I would have to multiply the population of my small hometown in Iowa by 40 to find (laughs) 32,000 people, let alone 32,000 fighting men. 32,000 is a good number of men. But that 32,000 was just a fraction of what the enemy had. Uh, The text says that the Midianites, and not just the Midianites, but the Amalekites and all of the other eastern peoples had gathered in the valley as thick as locusts. I mean, we are talking about a plague-sized group of people. Gideon and his 32,000 men would not hold a candle to what one commentator estimated to be somewhere around 150,000 fighting men on the side of the enemy. That's almost five times as many soldiers as Gideon and his ragtag group of men. But God was pretty sure that the amount of men that Gideon had would not work for the war either. In fact, God was so certain that the people Gideon had wouldn't work that he told Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men. This is not, this is not military strategy at its finest. This is... Imagine Gideon in this moment being told that 32,000 versus 150,000, and he has too many men. Like, are you serious? Have you taken a look at these 32,000 guys? I mean, I'm pretty sure I can beat most of them. God, you know, I'm not. I'm not much of a military guy. I don't come from a military family. Remember, I'm a farmer, and I'm not even a good farmer, because when you found me, I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. But there's something to be said. This does... This goes against logic. Too many men? But the battle that Israel and Gideon were called to fight would not be a battle that would be won by human strength or logic. As we saw last week, Israel, they like to do things their own way. The cycle of the book of Judges is things would go well for a while. The Israelites would do things their own way. They would get into oppression, which is where we find them now. They're being taken over by some people. And then they would cry out to God who would deliver them. And then they would worship him for a while. But then once kind of that that feeling wore off, once all the good feelings were gone, it was time to do things on their own terms again. Do things the way they wanted. Boast in their own strength. But God, he wasn't going to have that with this group. And so he says to Gideon, I cannot deliver Midian into the hands of the Israelites with this group, or they will boast in their own strength, saying, My own strength has saved me this time. And so it becomes a numbers game. Gideon goes back to the forces, and he says, anyone who is, is trembling with fear, or, or literally anyone who is afraid and shaking, go home, no hard feelings, it's okay. That is until 22,000 men leave out of cowardice. Uh, look, let's do some quick math a second. We started with 32,000. Uh, we're subtracting 22,000. Um, 10,000 remain. 10,000 versus 150,000 Pretty terrible odds. But God is, once again, still convinced that this group is far too large for the Israelites to win the battle. And if, if you don't think the story is interesting up to this point, it takes a turn for weird, strange, not even sure what's going on in the next part. Because getting and the men, they, they go down to the river and God says, I want you to separate them. I want you to separate those who lap water like a dog laps water from those who kneel down to drink. Uh, Quick little side note, in the Hebrew language, the word to drink is yalak. And if you would think in your mind and kind of imagine the sound that a dog makes when it drinks as the way the tongue slaps down into the water and pulls it back up, it kind of makes the sound yalak. It's like the Israelites were standing around watching a dog and like, that's a great word, we should uh, make it our word to drink, yalak. That's it. It has nothing to do with the story, I just thought it was an interesting point. (laughs) So then, after determining just exactly how many men most closely imitated a dog, both in sound and in posture, Gideon's left with 300. 300 men. Out of the original group that Gideon starts with, he's left with just 1% of what he started with. And friends, 1% is nothing to brag about. Gideon's left with 300 men. 300 men armed with a clay jar, a torch, and a trumpet, like some sort of a nocturnal marching band going around. And God tells Gideon, it's with this nocturnal marching band that I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. It's interesting to note that as the story keeps going on, we get to this next part, and, and God Provides Gideon with a sign. Not because Gideon had asked, but God provides him with another sign. And this time the sign came in the form of a dream. In the ancient world, dreams were were seen as the sign of uh, divine communication, that somehow whatever was the divine entity could speak through a dream and that would have um, predictable outcomes for the future. The Bible is actually filled with uh, a few of these different stories. Some of you might recall a man named Joseph who, beginning, who began to interpret dreams of a pharaoh that had major implications for, like, the next 14 years that were to come. Uh, other Bible stories feature this, but it's not just the Bible. Other ancient manuscripts, other ancient documents would talk about how people would listen to dreams, they'd hear each other's dreams, and see what significance they had for the future, and I would dare say that people today still put some stock in, in dreams and and trying to figure out what they might mean for their own lives. But God told Gideon, if you needed an encouragement to go into the camp, and it's in the camp where he hears a retelling of, of a dream, a dream about a round loaf of barley bread being propelled with such a force that it knocks over and collapses a tent. This is interesting. Uh, barley bread, barley was the grain that poor people used to bake bread. Uh, in this dream, the barley bread, uh, representing like a poor, oppressed, victimized Israelite nation. Uh, A tent representing people who were nomads, people who traveled around, people who constantly lived in tents, people like the Midianites. And upon uh, putting the pieces of this dream puzzle together, it's not too hard, you would see that this poor, oppressed, victimized Israelite nation being propelled by some force in such a way that it takes down a tent, takes down the nomadic tent-dwelling Midianites. The soldier in the tent, they know what's happening. Gideon and his servant know what's about to happen, and they fall down and they worship God. And Gideon goes back to his troops. Gideon, with his nocturnal marching band uh, full of their trumpets and their jars and their torches, they begin playing their most haunting air. They smash their jars, they blow their trumpets, they, they shout their war cry, and as the battle ensues in the confusion of the night. The Midians don't know friend from foe. They turn on each other. And then by the end of the story, the Israelites have victory. God was faithful in his promise to Gideon. God used just 1% to show how great his power was, he used just 1% of what was left to do incredible things. We're in the middle of this series that's called Sunday School, where we take some of these stories from the Bible, stories that might be uh, told to your children right now, back in Encounter Kids, or stories some of you may have heard growing up, and we take them to say, what was it that we maybe learned in the past that we can still take today, but what about hearing these stories for who we are now as growing and maturing adults? And so as we take a look at this this second story of Gideon, we take a look at that first point that Gideon and the Israelites were called to a battle they could not win by human strength or logic. And there's there's something to that. Something in our own lives that might tell us that there might be battles in our own lives that we can't not win in our own strength. We might come against... Well, when human strength and logic is something that, you know, gets celebrated, and, and when those things get celebrated, it's kind of like we really quickly forget just who supplied those things. When we work really hard, we see the results of our work, we see technology advancing, we see human ingenuity, and pretty soon ultimate trust goes to those things. Well, surely it's in my own strength that this has happened. But then... We encounter these things in life that kind of bring us to this point and pretty sure, pretty soon it's like there's nothing that we could do and we're a little bit lost as to where we are. Where does our ultimate trust go in those moments? We face these battles that we're not sure what to do with. We may not call them battles. They might look like something else but we find ourselves kind of being whittled down to something. Whittled down to maybe 1% whittled down to a place where it might seem like there's not much left. Maybe there's not much hope for things getting better. But maybe through the story we see that we're called into these battles that we cannot win in our own strength. And as the story moves on, maybe it leaves us with the next part that says, when we face these battles, when we face these moments of, of unexpected weakness, we have the confidence that we have a God who will display power in those moments. We have the confidence that God's power can be made perfect in our weakness. Now we don't face a battle like uh, like raiding nomadic nations coming into our homes and like setting up tents and stealing things out of our drawers. We don't do things like we don't have things like that going on here, um, but we we do face battles of a, a different kind. Uh, We might face a battle of quick tempers. We might face battles of health, where it just seems like something is always going wrong. Uh, We might face battles where there's these unending temptations that come our way or unending temptations that lead to addictions that we can't seem to free ourselves from. We might face battles where we feel like we're alone. We're isolated. We're dejected. Nobody wants us. We just feel like things get worse and worse and worse and worse until we are just hanging on by a thread. Hanging on by 1%. But what if, in those moments of the 1%, we turn our eyes to focus on a God whose power comes out of the 1%, a God who provides grace. A God who gives us a place to stand that when we feel like we're barely hanging on, that he's with us. If Gideon part one was to teach us that in the moments of doubt and uncertainties that we can can seek, expect, and anticipate that God will respond to us in some way, then Gideon part two is here to show us that as things get even worse, God's promises to walk along beside us still remain true. God provides us the grace to stand on. God God showed that in a moment of weakness, his power was made perfect. And that happened in this way. Uh, When a man named Jesus Christ was hanging on a cross, when he's bleeding and he's in agonizing pain, when he gives up his spirit in death, in Christ's greatest moment of weakness, God's power was made perfect. God did not leave Jesus in the grave, but Christ rose again. He came up over the grave, conquering sin, conquering death. Those things no longer have the final say. God provided the grace to stand on, a way to show us that in our weaknesses, his promises are true, that his grace abounds. So whatever that 1% might look like in your life, the question you leave with today is, Will you trust that God is still walking beside you? Will you turn your face to God in the moments of the 1%? At this time, I want to invite Stephen Chevalier to come forward. Um, Stephen's going to share with us a testimony, and um, we call them grace encounters, moments where, where God is seen in a, in a significant way. And Stephen is going to share for us this morning what it's like to be in the 1% what it's like to be on each side of the 1%. So, Stephen, it's all yours.
1: Okay. Uh, before I give my Grace Encounter, I just wanted to make the observation that um, a couple of years back there was a blockbuster movie called uh, 300, and I cannot wait until the prequel 301 comes out featuring Gideon and his army. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Um... <laughs> As Christians, we're told that God will handle all of our problems, and while this is true, it can sometimes feel like not much changes even when we put our faith in him. I was raised in a Christian household with very supportive parents, yet I didn't have the best self-esteem. I was an actor from my first to thirteenth year. This experience taught me how to hide my low self-esteem expertly, and as an actor, I learned how to um, display a projected image of myself as opposed to how I actually felt. So when other people were around I was optimistic, upbeat, funny when I was alone it was a very different story I loved acting and would not take that and would not take that back for the world however it made finding the help I needed much harder as I developed both mentally and spiritually I began to think about uh, that I didn't know who I was I began playing different roles in front of every group of people and I forgot I found myself questioning which personality was authentic Throughout this questioning period, I became convinced that God could not love me, because I did not love me. I was convinced that I wasn't good enough, and as a senior in high school, I convinced myself to give up hope on Christianity. Then when I entered college, uh, my self-loathing hit an all-new height. I played around with the thought of suicide, and at the end of my freshman year in college, I tried hanging myself in my on-campus apartment. Thankfully, this wasn't the end, uh, but a wake-up call to me. I decided to seek help, and uh, as I had no desire to die, despite the growing frequency and seriousness of my attempts at hurting and killing myself, within a few days I was put on medication and began seeing doctors. That was about three and a half years ago. And since then I've been gaining my faith back slowly, realizing that I could have died but that God wanted me alive for something. However just because I put my faith back in God did not mean that things got easier within six months of being on medication I walked in on my long-term girlfriend of six years in my bed with my best friend and roommate shortly after that I began to lose my great-uncles and aunts there have been six funerals in my extended family in the past nine months since turning 21 I've been struggling with alcohol it wasn't until Chad gave his grace encounter about a month ago or two uh, that I decided to go dry before that I'd been the passenger of two drunk drivers both of whom crashed No one was injured in either accident, and only the drunks' cars were damaged. At the time, I knew it could have been worse, but I was too busy focusing on how bad it already was instead of looking at what could have happened. Yet, despite the loss of my best friends, several of my relatives, and the near-deadly accidents, not all things are bad. I realize that even if 99% of my life seems to be going downhill, I can still see God in the 1% that I'm able to recognize as positive. Right now, the most exp- uh, positive experience is here at a counter, where I found God among the volunteers, congregation members, and our pastors. So my grace encounter comes down to this. Uh, God stopped me from killing myself. He showed me I have plenty to live for. Even though events around me seem to get worse, I know that better times are possible, and that as long as I can keep my eyes on him, the one that provides the positive 1% visible to me, I'll be fine.
0: Stephen, uh, thanks for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, very powerful, um, moving story. Thanks. Um, let's stand. So um, I'll pray for Stephen and pray for you as this, we go out into this week ahead of us. Um, God, thanks for Stephen. Thank you uh, for saving his life, Lord, for, for showing him that there's, there's so much to live for and that you are a valuable, or that he is a valuable child of you. Uh, God, give him the strength and the encouragement that he needs to, to carry on. Lord, even in these tough times that are, are still persisting, Lord, um, be with him. Give him your strength and know that there is a community of people here at Encounter Church who, who love him and support him. And God, for all of us who are in moments where things are tough and we're not sure where to, where to go next or what, what life has in store, God, would you give us a, that measure of your grace so we can see that place to stand on even in the 1%. And God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.